Good morning. As Pastor Ernie said, we're continuing in our series in the Psalms, looking at David's life in the books of First and Second Samuel, and tracing out and comparing what he says in the Psalms with what's happening in his life in First and Second Samuel. And uh, just for those of you who maybe are new to the Bible uh, or are unfamiliar with um, the life of David, David was the second king in Israel, and he was its greatest king, and he was a prolific writer of psalms. These are songs of praise and lament to God. And we have been tracing his life, and we've been through, with him through his ups and with him through his downs. So we've seen him anointed king. We've seen him running for his life, hiding in caves. We've seen him uh, given triumph over his enemies by the Lord. We've seen him bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, super high point. And then last week, we saw him at his lowest in his sin, as Ernie said, with Bathsheba, he committed rape and murder. And you wonder, how, how can, I, didn't I just say that he was Israel's greatest king? How can David be its greatest king and, and also be one who sinned so grievously? Well, David was not great because of wisdom on his part or goodness on his part. David was great because his God was great. And his God made promises to him that nothing that David could do could break. And we're seeing those promises played out in his life, but we're also seeing the consequences of his sin played out in his life. Um, we are today in Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is one of the psalms that David wrote later in his life. Maybe you're wondering, wait, wh- why is it in the beginning of the book of Psalms? That's the book in the Bible right in the middle. It's like the hymn book of Israel. Uh, Why is it Psalm number three if it happened later in David's life? Well, um, the Psalms are not organized by chronology. It's not organized by time, but by theme. And what you see is that it moves progressively from lament and sorrow to pure praise and thanksgiving towards the end. And so Psalm three is a lament. David is crying out to God because his life is falling apart around him. The main point in this psalm is that against our enemies and in spite of our own sin and our failures, God is our shield and our salvation. So open your Bibles if you have them or get get it up on your phone. We're going to read from Psalm 3, um, but before we do, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we so thank you for being a God who is there, And being a God who speaks, you have spoken to us through your word. You've spoken us through your servant, uh, spoken to us through your servant David, by your Spirit. We ask that today, as we come to your word, you would make it effective in our lives to transform our hearts. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you are speaking to us today. Amen. So this is Psalm three. It says, a psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. 
I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Um, at the beginning of this psalm, we see uh, a little blurb that tells us what is happening at the time when David writes it. It says that um, it's a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Um, and maybe in your Bibles, I don't know about what, about what it is in yours, but in mine, there's no verse number next to that, but you might think that this isn't actually part of the text that we have. It's, maybe it's like a, the ESV giving you a, 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 an editorial note. It's not an editorial note. This is from the Hebrew. It's part of the original psalm. And it's telling us, importantly, what the context is of the psalm. And the context comes from 2 Samuel chapter 15, where Absalom, David's son, has begun a rebellion. He's declared himself king. And the word about what has happened comes to David. And it comes in chapter 15, verse 13 and 14. Let me read it for us. It says, And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. So there's a rebellion in Israel. And this forces David and his servants to flee. If they stayed there, they were going to get killed. But there's so much more to this story that happened beforehand. And it goes back to the, the message that we heard from last week, where we read uh, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, where David sins with Bathsheba. What happens is David... David saw a woman that he wanted, and he took her from her home, and he violated her. And then he sent her home. And when it, came, it became out that she was pregnant, she told him. He tried to cover it up. And then when he couldn't cover it up, he plotted and schemed to have her husband killed in battle, Uriah the Hittite. And then when he died, he brought her into his home to be his wife. And now when... David, when, when God confronted David with this sin, David repented, and God put away his sin. David didn't die for his sin, but there were costs, and there were consequences, not just for Bathsheba and, and her husband, but also for other people, um, and for, specifically for David's family. And this is what God says to David. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, Verse 9 and 10. Why have you, this is God speaking to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. It's a very heavy passage, and the background to our psalm today is pretty heavy. But God says this, The sword 
shall never depart from your house. And in the following chapters, we see this this prophecy of God come true in David's life as he sees his own sin replayed in the life of his two eldest sons. So Amnon was David's firstborn son, and just like David, he sees a woman that he wants, his half-sister, and he plots and schemes, and then he rapes her. And when David hears about it, David is angry, but he does nothing. But David's secondborn, Absalom, Tamar's first, Tamar's full brother, he does not do nothing. He plots and schemes, like his dad did, for two years, until he finds the opportune moment, and he kills his older brother in the wilderness. And again, David hears, and David's angry, but again, he does nothing. There's a strange passivity to David in these chapters. There's an inaction. It's as if his own moral failure has paralyzed him from acting justly. He has two offices of responsibility that he is skirting right now. One is that he is a father, and the second is that he is king, the one who's supposed to bring justice in the land. And on both counts, he's not acting the part. It's as if when David sees his sons living just like he lived, the reality of his own guilt and shame prevents him from addressing it. How can David bring justice against his sons when they're doing the very things that he did? He does nothing. And I don't know about you, when I, when I read this story, I read how David's life is so quickly replayed in his own son's lives, um, I feel that deeply. Because right now, I have a son who's turning two this year. I've got another son coming next month. And our son right now, he is, he's at that age where he's watching constantly. He's watching everything I do, everything I say. And if I just say one thing, he'll start repeating it. He is at the age where he imitates everything he sees dad and mom doing. So there's a weight on me to set a godly example for him and then later his brother. A godly example in how I spend my time, in what I say, how I love their mom, how I do my job, and especially how I walk, following after Jesus. And so I ask myself, do I live as one who is living under the authority of God, or am I living as one who's just living under my own authority? I'm accountable to just me. For a time, for a season, David was living exactly that way, as if he was accountable just to himself and not to God. Will I apologize to my children when I wrong them, when I hurt them? I pray that I will. There's a weighty responsibility on dads and moms to live a life worthy of imitation before their kids. And you've probably heard um, stories about moms and dads who they're parenting their child and they're so exasperated with what's going on, some certain acting out or disobedience, and they're just like, you, you, and then they just realize, you're just like me. (laughs) But imagine, imagine the horror that David had when he watches his sons become like him in all the wrong ways. There, the story continues. So three years later, um, so Absalom kills his older brother. He runs away, and he's away from David for three years. 
But, two year, but then after three years, David allows him to come back. And, but he, wasn't, he, won't, he won't see him for two years. For two whole years, he's living in the city with his father, but he won't see his father. Eventually, um, he's allowed to see his dad. And then he plots and schemes again. Um, he starts to meet people on the way to Jerusalem to see the king. They're coming with their disputes, with their court cases. They're asking the king for justice, and Absalom stops them on the way, and he says this. He says, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, there's, there's nobody appointed by the king to hear your case. Oh, if only I were the judge in Israel, then I would bring you justice. And he tells the people what they want to hear, and he's handsome, and so people start to, they go over to Absalom. They start to, uh, trust him and want him to be king. He wins their hearts. And so after four years of doing this, Absalom eventually declares himself king, and all of Israel rallies to him. And that's what we heard at the beginning, is that Absalom has declared himself king, and all the people have gone to him. Their hearts have gone out to him. And then David flees. He leaves Jerusalem, and he heads to the east to cross the Jordan, to get to safety. And that's where David writes this psalm, Psalm 3. Um, the psalm has three sections, three main movements. In verses 1 to 2, David laments. He laments what's happening. In verses 3 to 4, he remembers who God is. And in verses 5 to 8, David entrusts himself to God. Let's look again at the first two verses. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. So we see David lament. He calls God by name, Lord, or Yahweh. And he complains, he laments. He tells God what is going on and what people are saying about him. And they're saying, in effect, that David has lost the favor of God. There is no salvation for him in God. And it would be very easy for these words to enter into David and consume him. Wasn't it God who said, the sword shall never depart from your house? Isn't this part of what God said would happen? Isn't David suffering the consequences of his own actions? He sinned. He failed to govern his family. He failed to govern his kingdom. And now he is reaping the fruit. And there's a, there's a human temptation at this point, to let people sit and suffer in the consequences of their bad decisions and their sin. Not listening to them, not helping them, um, thinking this is, what, this is what you deserve, or this is what I deserve. You need to learn a lesson. You need to, you've made your bed, and now you need to lay in it. And David could have thought that way about his own circumstances and felt that he had no right to pray to God and complain. But that's not what David does. It's very interesting. Yes, he is suffering the consequences of his actions. He wasn't the father he should have been. He wasn't the king he should have been. And now he's reaping that bitter fruit. But he still flees to the Lord. He casts himself upon the Lord. Why? Why can he do that? Because David is exactly the kind of person God calls to himself. G. 
Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous to myself, but sinners to repentance. And again, we read in Paul that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It is specifically when your life is screwed up and falling apart, and it's your fault that God calls you to himself. That's when you're supposed to flee to God. You don't have to be worthy or righteous to come to God. No one is righteous or worthy. God calls you now in your troubles, especially your homemade, self-inflicted troubles. He calls you to himself to flee to him, to pray to him, to lament to him. God knows all your sins. He knows all your failures, every, every thought, every word, and yet he calls you still. It's not because of who you are that you can come to him, but it's because of who God is. And that's what David reflects on next in, psalm, in the psalm, in verses 3 to 4. Listen to what he says. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. There are two Two major themes in the book of the Psalms. There's so many Psalms, but there's two really big themes that come out. Uh, The first one is that God is king. The second one is that God is our refuge. And we see this theme, both these themes, in these two verses. David says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. God is, a, God is our shield. He is our protection. He is our refuge. Um, God is called our refuge or our protection 37 times in the Psalms. He is called our rock 24 times. He's called our shield 19 times. And the other, t- other times you hear he is our fortress, our stronghold, our shelter. God is the one where we flee when things are falling apart. And these are not just words. This is a specific promise of God about who he is and what he will be for his people. In, in Genesis chapter 15, you know, the first book of the Bible, God is making promises to Abraham. And one thing that he says in verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So D- David is reflecting upon what God has said about himself. And he's praying those words back to God. You are my shield, God, not me. You are my glory, not me. You are the lifter of my head, not me. And if I am saved out of this, the implicit meaning is if I am saved out of this, it's not because of me, it's because of you, Lord. So David cries to God, and God answers him. It says that God answers him from his holy hill. Maybe you see that phrase a lot in the Psalms, holy hill, God's holy hill. Um, The holy hill is... That place in Jerusalem where uh, God's presence dwells. It's symbolized by what will be the temple later. It's not built yet in David's time. But at David's time, the Ark of the Covenant is there. That that box that contains the, the Ten Commandments, the covenant between God and his people. And the Ark represents God's royal presence in the midst of his people. Um, in, in 2 Samuel Chapter 6, verse 2, it says that the ark, it says this, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The cherubim were these two angels that were atop the, the lid of the ark. And this place is where God has the symbol of his earthly reign, his earthly presence. So David is saying, God, you are king. 
You are ruling in Jerusalem, not my son Absalom. Absalom thinks he's king, but God himself is king. God is still reigning, not Absalom. And we see this play out in the story of the rebellion. So in chapter 17, um, Absalom has come into Jerusalem. He's consolidating his power. Different advisors are coming to him, telling him what to do next. And one of them, there's a guy named Ahithophel. It's a, it's a nice tongue twister. Uh, that one, this man has very good advice. He's a very good strategic thinker. He knows what to do in a, in a, in a hard situation. And so he says to Absalom this about what to do next. In chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. Ahithophel said to Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men, and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with me will flee. I will strike down only the king. So Ahithophel's plan is, let me go now and catch David before he crosses over the Jordan while he's resting tonight, and I will kill him, and then you will have your kingdom. But there's another man called Hushai, Hushai the Archite, and David left him behind to be a spy in, in Absalom's presence, and God uses Hushai to defeat the council of Ahithophel. And so uh, Hushai says, no, don't go now. If you go now, David's men, they're, they're trained warriors, and they will defeat you. What you need to do is wait, consolidate all your power, get all the men together, then you go out, Absalom, at the head of the army, and you go and fight your father. Sounded like good advice. It also stroked Absalom's ego, and so he chose that advice. And this is what it says in verse 14, chapter 17, verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the, and then it says, there's an editorial note, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. God ordained what was going to happen. God ordained that Ahithophel's good strategic advice would lose and Hushai's advice would win out so that God could defeat Absalom. Even in a rebellion, where it seems like all the enemies uh, are, are against you, and they're going to win. It looks like they're going to win. If God is still king, what he ordains is going to pass, not what other self-made, self-declared kings ordain. God is king, he reigns, and therefore he is the perfect one in whom to take refuge. God is king. Therefore, we should take refuge in him. And this is what David does. In verses 5 to 6, David entrusts himself to God. Verse 5 and 6 say, I lay, I, I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David remembers who God is, and so he trusts him. He sees how God has sustained him. He said, I lay down and I slept, and I woke again because the Lord sustained me. Now, this is, this is true universally. If you lay down and you sleep and then you wake the next morning, praise God, the Lord has sustained you. But David's also speaking about a specific time that he laid down. It was that night that he fled, that evening. He fled, he's on, he's on the west side of the Jordan, still vulnerable to attack. His, his men had waited and rested before they crossed over. If Absalom had come that night, he would have caught them unawares, and he could have killed them. But he didn't. 
because the Lord sustained him. God defeated the council of Ahithophel. David was vastly outnumbered, but because God was his shield, he did not need to fear uh, because God had ordained what was going to happen. Absalom makes one strategic mistake after another because that's what God ordained to happen. And eventually, Absalom's own pride and his own sin led to his downfall. No number of enemies can triumph against God's people because God is their king, God is their refuge. Then we see in verses 7 to 8, David continues, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Here again, David is using the language of Scripture in, and he's applying it to his present circumstance. This, this phrase, arise, O God, or arise, O Lord, it comes from the book of Numbers. When Israel was in the wilderness, every time they picked up camp and they moved to another place, they would say, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. David's picking up that language and asking now for the Lord to scatter his enemies. They said this, not because they really believed it. I hope they would believe it. But they said it to remind them again and again that it's God that gives them victory. God gives them salvation, not their own strength, not their own power, but the Lord. And then in verse 7 we read that David, he, he, says, this, he says that God strikes all his enemies on the cheek and he breaks the teeth of the wicked. Again, he's praying with confidence that God will thwart the rebellion and deal fatal blows to his enemies' heads. Um, this might be like confusing imagery for us to pray today. We don't pray this way today because, well, what we hope for, what we long for, the defeat of evil is already fulfilled in Christ. But, but this imagery comes from, comes from the book of Genesis. It comes from the very first announcement of the gospel. And that comes in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have sinned against God. They've thrown in their lot with the serpent, that is, Satan, and they now have enmity with God. They have hostility with Satan against the Lord. And then God confronts them, confronts Adam, confronts Eve, and then he confronts the serpent. And this is what he says to the serpent in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We call this the, uh, the first announcement of the gospel because God promises two things here. One is that the fellowship between Adam and Eve and Satan against God, so that they have enmity when, when they have agreed to listen to the serpent and denied their Lord and creator, when they have Listen to the serpent. They've made an alliance with him against God, and now they have enmity against God. But what does God say? He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent. So instead of enmity between us and God, there's going to be enmity instead against us and evil, against us and Satan. And this is God's pure mercy. Because if you read the story, Adam and Eve... 
There's no repentance. There's, there's no confession of sin. Until God speaks this, they are, fully, they, they are fully on Satan's side. But when God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, that's where God breaks the fellowship and says, no, you're going, you need to be saved. You need grace. Grace liberates us from that alliance with the devil against God, with sin against God, and brings us again into his fellowship. David did not repent of his sin until what? God confronted him. And we also don't repent of our sin until God confronts us with it, has mercy on us. Salvation, from the very beginning, is by grace. Grace alone. The second thing God promises is this. He says that there's going to be one who will come to crush the head of the serpent. He will bruise his head, and this person's heel will be bruised by the serpent. David knows this promise. He's reflecting on this promise, and he hoped for it. And today we know this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It wasn't just anyone that would come to crush the head of the serpent. It was God himself in human flesh who came to crush the head of the serpent at the cost of bruising himself. He suffered, Jesus suffered condemnation for sin in our place. He took on himself the penalty of death coming to us for sin. And people said of him, like they said of David, there's no salvation for him in God. But they were wrong. Jesus died, he rose from the grave, and then he ascended, and now he lives, and he reigns at the right hand of the Father, and he gives life to all who trust in him and put their faith in him. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, that Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's that imagery, feet, and enemies under the feet. Christ comes to crush the head of the serpent. When you trust in Jesus, when you follow him, he takes away your sin, he gives you his righteousness and life. So how can a sinner like David pray to God and be hurt? Because God has put away his sin, and he's put it instead on Christ. Jesus is our shield and our salvation. So the accusations of Satan are silenced by the work of Christ. When Satan comes to tell you your failures, your sins, your faults, I'm sure David experienced this in his own life, those accusations are silenced by the work of Christ. The judgment for your sin, for David's sin, is spent and exhausted on the cross of Jesus. The Lord has put away your sin because he has taken it. Salvation, it's not from us, belongs to the Lord. So when your life's a mess, when it seems like everything's on fire and it's your fault, especially when it's your fault, Jesus says, come to me. I am your shield. When your failures overwhelm you, when you've hurt your family or your brother or your sister or your, your mom, your dad, or, or your spouse, when you've screwed up at work or made a mess of things at school or hurt your friends, you feel like everything's spinning out of control, Jesus says, I am your shield. Don't run to a quick fix 
Salvation is not in some new technique or new technology or some new policy or program. You won't find it in some neat new trick like you see on the internet all the time. No, salvation belongs to the Lord. To circle around to what we were talking about before, about you know, setting an example before your, your children, you know, moms and dads, you do want, you do want to set a godly example for the, for the people that God has entrusted to you, your, your, your children. But salvation is not determined by you. Salvation belongs to the Lord so that you can trust, even in the midst of your failures, God is merciful and gracious. Salvation isn't, isn't determined by you. It's not turned by your witness or example, but by the Lord. It belongs to the Lord. And kids, you need Jesus just as much as your parents do. Remember that. Your mom and dad need Jesus, and you need Jesus. But right now, you're put in the place where you are called to listen to them and follow them as they lead you to Christ. In church, society is always telling us to find salvation in something else. There's always some new cause there's always some new program that promises salvation. But we know that salvation belongs to the Lord and nothing else. And that's what we were called to. So when we lament, we, we, we come, we lament to the Lord. We take our troubles to him because he is king. He is our shield. And there is salvation in no one else. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are. We praise you that you are our shield and salvation. We ask that you come to us now, remind us, call us to yourself. I pray for each and every one of us here that in our troubles, in our crises, we would run to you, flee to you, because that is exactly when we need you most. We always need you, Lord. Sometimes we feel that we don't deserve you. We don't, but you give yourself anyway. We praise you for your goodness and your mercy. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.